Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. If um, they're responding to your work and your work is really personal, then reading you is another way of meeting you, isn't that right? That's so good. Thank you. I don't know why you mean to me. I think that if there's a sort of sadness for people under 45, it has something to do with pleasure and achievement and entertainment. Like a sort of emptiness at the heart of what they thought was going on. I don't know. I got a real serious fear of being a certain way. I treasure my regular guyness. You don't crack open a thousand page book because you heard the author is a regular guy. You do it because he's brilliant. What is with you? What is with you? I'm not so sure you want to be me. Just be a good guy. In 1996, David Lipsky, who wrote for... Rolling Stone magazine. Exactly. Went to interview David Foster Wallace, who was being touted at that time as sort of the next Hemingway major, major, major American author, but who wrote in his style that was really very long-winded, long, long sentences. Long, uh, long books. Long, long books. <laughs> One of them was over a thousand pages. And we just got to watch an hour and a half, or almost two hours, I guess, of Jason Siegel and Jesse Eisenberg reenacting the interview that took place between the two gentlemen. And I'm sort of without words, so I'm just going to turn it over to you and say, what'd you think? I thought the movie was so well done. And I believe this is what they call in the industry a two-hander, because it's really two great actors who just inhabit the screen. I loved the setup for this movie, because writers, I find, infinitely interesting. But... They've always been problematic for other writers to portray on the screen because, honestly, writing is such a solitary endeavor. Which she talks about, right? Right, so Mm -hmm. you can be prone to loneliness. And, of course, there's writer's block, but neither of those two things are a very visual vehicle. So I loved this setup where you had an interviewer posing these questions, sometimes being in his face, sometimes being sympathetic. You could watch the two interact as humans, but talk about the process. Sometimes wishing he was, you know, would it be that I was you, he was thinking. Yes. And then other times saying, thank God I'm not you. And, of course, a lot of writers deal with um, rejection or ego or criticism and it was very interesting watching a less successful author interview a supremely successful and touted writer. Right. And the end, the end of David Foster Wallace um, was through suicide. He yes, killed tragically. he did kill himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And young in his 40s. He was in his 40s and you sort of see the the um, foreshadowing. You see that this is going to be a train wreck. It just isn't going to happen in this movie. Right. And you know the end that he comes to and you And see, they start with that. They do. They start after his you death, know, that's right. 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 And exactly. then they flash back to the interview. Right. right. Um, that so, had taken place 10 So the tale that it tells is a tale of great genius, and I can't help but think of biographies I've read about Van Gogh and some of the great musicians and and great um, songwriters, and you know, when you're that much smarter than everybody else, and they Mm -hmm. discuss this in the film, it is a lonely road if you're thinking things that you know no one else is thinking and you're walking along and they and I, I don't walk that road because I'm not that smarter <laughs> than anybody else but I will say that they I think he really showed it and one of the things that you've taught me along the way of great film is that you need to show it rather than say it sometimes mm-hmm. and the combination between their words and their actions and their facial expressions and everything else tells this incredible incredibly poignant tale beautifully mm-hmm. and if anybody doesn't go see this movie it will be a shock to me 
the thing that amazed me is um, up until this film, I had only seen Jason Segel in the Muppet movies. I was just going to say. he did with Amy Adams. I've never seen him in anything, but also. And I saw him in the five-year engagement exactly. with Emily Blunt. So I'd always seen him in comedic roles. His acting was seamless. I did not feel his acting at all. I thought he was David Foster Wallace. Okay, well, have you ever seen David Foster Wallace? I've seen him on YouTube videos, uh-huh. and I've heard his voice in audiobooks. Right, exactly. I did, about a year ago, watch a commencement speech that he gave at Kenyon College. And the juxtaposition between an acerbic tongue, mm-hmm. sarcasm, mm-hmm. kindness, yep. and hope... Mm-hmm. Uh, made it really an amazing, uh, amazing address. That Siegel really nailed it. He really nailed it. When you listen to the mm-hmm. syntax and the way yep. he spoke and everything else, and you His see voice. pictures of yep. him, mm-hmm. um, this he has a huge future in front of him. He mm-hmm. definitely does. What an amazing actor! And I've only said this twice this year. I think he will probably be up for an Academy Award if he enough people see it. it. He yeah. really does. Oh my and God! With that amazing much work. Screen time. Amazing work. And really, no other distractions. It's really two men in a room. Yep. He could almost name the entire. Cast. I mean, it opens. Well, and- I would like to point out oh. that I did turn to O'Toole in the middle and mm-hmm. said, she was in My Girl. The the woman who plays uh, Jesse's girlfriend. Anna Chlumsky? Yeah, Anna Chlumsky was in My Girl. And I always wondered what happened to her. And she's just as good as she was back then. And of course, you know, our friend Miss Gummer was there as well. Yes. And even when it first started, and Jesse Eisenberg from, of course, The Social Network, was asking his editor at Rolling Stone if he could go cover this story. That was Berger from Sex and the City. Oh, I didn't know. The one who broke up with Carrie on a post it note. Well, it was Berger with a beard. Huh. Well, there you go. Joan Cusack, of course, was in it. Well, well, and by the way, can I just say I wish women would stop getting work done. Oh. Why did she do that? She had one of the great faces on the screen, and now it looks just average. I mean, her role in Working Girl. Please. Fabulous. Unbelievable. Fabulous, fabulous. Okay, now, it opens up. The juxtaposition between Eisenberg and, and Siegel was a little bit out of all the president's men, because if Jesse Eisenberg's mother was sitting next to his wife, sitting next to his daughter... All three of them, by the end of the movie, would have hated him. <laughs> you know, I mean, he is not a compelling character. And by the way, he wasn't in the social network either. Honestly, you? I could not tell okay. with this screenplay how unlikable he was supposed to be, where his character stopped and his interpretation of the character began. Because I was, I was watching him thinking, can I exactly put my finger on why I don't like this journalist? Mm. Well, because he's a journalist. One could say that it's because he's a journalist. He's looking for the bad angle rather than the good. You know, we have to go back to Pollyanna. If you look for the bad in somebody, you will surely find it. And And he was looking for it. But even there, we find out. You know, not at the very beginning of the movie that when Burger with a beard sent him off to do his assignment, he was really supposed to be following up on the heroin angle. And he didn't immediately. And I thought, is that because he was? But he knew he would. He just wanted him to like him, maybe. Which, again, was he doing it out of a good motive or to get more unguarded quotes? Was it out of a... Well, we never really know all the motivation. We just know there's more than one. Mm-hmm. And we know that they weren't friends afterward. And, you know, there's a, there's a scene at the end when he opens up a box that arrives from Wallace after he's left the interview. And it's, it's shoe. And it says, yours, I assume. And it's just one. It's one shoe that he left behind. Mm-hmm. And he searches in the box to see, isn't there something else? Like, where's your note about my work is really what we knew he was thinking. But how did he leave behind one shoe? Because he, he, well, in that room, you could easily leave behind, he packed one shoe and not the other. Do you know what's funny is when he 
first opened up the box and I saw a shoe, I thought it was going to be David Foster Wallace making another analogy to trust walk me. Walk in my you, shoes. You don't want to walk in You don't want to be me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I really love the character of David Foster Wallace. I find him very intriguing. And he was very Robert Redford in All the President's Men. You know, Robert Redford in All the President's Men mm-hmm. was the hopeful guy, the honest guy, the yep. kind guy, the, the likable the right guy, guy. The light, do mm-hmm. the right thing guy. Speak which, up even if it's not going to be exactly. popular Exactly. And Wallace says that to him a number of times. Mm-hmm. Do the right thing. Yep. Okay. And then the good we had Bernstein, who we all, you know, know was not exactly the nicest Nora, of human beings. Nora being. Ephron's ex. Well, we won't mm. talk about you. Know, that was between Nora and him, and we don't know. We weren't there. I don't, we don't know, know if she wrote really about happened. it. Exactly. Okay. But t- it did remind me of that relationship of almost where when Robert Redford used to sort of look up like, I'm sorry, what are you saying? You know, mm-hmm. like, what am I supposed to do? And it was a little bit like that. It was a little bit as if a couple of times... Uh, Jesse put his head in cold water or something. And it's a little bit like viewing journalists as reality TV producers where they befriend you with this false intimacy to get revelations to come out of your mouth and then they backstab you and they go into your bathroom and look inside your medicine cabinet and, you know, they're they're kind of mercenary. There's a very important moment at the beginning of the film when Jesse Eisenberg is reading his book. He's read about David Foster Wallace, and he says to his girlfriend, he says, this is the best writer ever. I love him. I love him. And he gets a little jealous and says, well, he can't be that good. And he reads the book, and he's halfway through the book. And then he goes into his editor and says, I have to interview him. Mm -hmm. And you knew that he said that because he knew the guy was a better writer than him. And he wanted to find the flaw in him as a person and as a writer and as everything else. And that's why he went to interview him. Because if not, how could he elevate himself? And it was very well done. Yeah, he and admires it was, him. He's jealous exactly, of him. But, but that mm-hmm. really laid the groundwork for what we saw next and how he went with one intention but left with another. There's a quote that David Foster Wallace said that I have in my journal, as you know, I... I keep quotes in my journal that I write in every day, and I had one of his in it, and it's, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. Wow, that's a great quote. I love that quote, Mm -hmm. and I've loved that quote for two years ever since I first heard about him, and I think this movie really speaks to that quote. Mm -hmm. And one of the truths that he's seeking is, am I really a good guy, or am I just sucked into all this fame and fortune? You know, he fights to not go there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the struggles of our lives laid out that brilliantly. Whoever did the screenplay, unbelievable. Donald Margulies, the great Pulitzer-winning Donald Margulies, who not only is a screenplay writer, but also a playwright. So he won the Pulitzer for Dinner with Friends and was nominated for two other Pulitzers for his other work, which is the perfect person to get for this when it's such a small cast. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, again, movies that are based on plays, or in this case, they could have been a play, um, a little bit like Frost-Nixon, I, I find they play out so well because, right. as you know, I always prioritize character and dialogue mm-hmm. over special effects. Well, boy, or, you had it you there. Know, you, I mean, you know, this really should be up for Beck's picture. I and best feel, screenplay. I don't, think, screenplay. I don't think enough people will see it. They can get the word out about this, keeping in mind that people have equated his work. It's a different kind of work, but they've equated it to the great, Salinger, Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them, by the way, lived the same tormented lives that, that Wallace lived. You know, yeah. they both had the same 
you know, I got to go off and live by myself and I'm tormented and have all these issues. They, you know, they all seem to have that in common. You know, while I was watching it, I was thinking about that book called What Happy People Know, written by the man that started the wellness program out in Arizona. And he said he's had so many famous clients come in and the rest of the world would just presume that they are happy beyond words because they're rock stars or they're wealthy or they have all these outward signs of achievement and success. And I think this movie did such a good job of saying if you don't have an internal source for your own happiness, what a lonely life it can be. And even when he, the character played by Jason Siegel, David Foster Wallace's character, was saying that even when fans came up to him, he couldn't even believe that they really saw him as a person, that they just liked him because they liked his book. It was a very good portrayal of depression and loneliness. It was. It was. Um, and the cost of fame. Now, the book that I read, and by the way, his his work is very hard to read if you're not into that you know, a sentence can be three pages in his work. So, I mean, you really have to focus in a way that I certainly am not capable of. So someone recommended to me um, that I read brief interviews with hideous men. Oh, his short stories. Yeah, that was the good starter book for him. So if anybody's looking for the first book they want to read of his, that might be it. And it'll be interesting to see in 100 years when everybody's long gone whether he sits where Hemingway and Salinger and, and people like that sit. And yet, uh, even in the last 10 years, so many people have studied his work and written about yeah. his work. And it's a movie that's not to be missed. Definitely not to be missed. And again, cannot say enough good things about Jason Siegel. Uh-huh. He took me by Why surprise. Why is he not in more movies? He's going to be, right? Promise um, me that he he's is. He's actually been in quite a few. Okay. Do you have, can you name a couple? Uh, well, the five-year engagement okay. with Emily Blunt. Oh, not, I'm not feeling it. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Not, not one that moved me. Um, this is 40. Not so much. <laughs> Okay, this, by the way, is his doorway into, you know, enormous fabulousness. He was an I love you man. Okay, I don't want to talk about his past. Let's talk about his future. The rear view mirror, in this case, is smaller than the windshield for a really good reason. He was on Freaks and Geeks. He was on How I Met Your Mother. Well, from now on, he's going to only do things like The Lovely Bones. Let me trust me. He's only going to do very, very amazing film, and he did great work. A lot of close-ups in this movie, and, he, and you better get him right, and he did, he every single really one. He really inhabited yep. the character. Yep. I know he's the one that got to wear the long hair and the bandana, but boy, did I think he was just vibing David Foster Wallace. I think it could bring bandanas back. I think it, I think you're absolutely you know, right. And I think it's hashtag bring bandanas back. <laughs> Is going to be associated oh, so with this movie. This is why you're paid the big bucks. You've I know, got the but it is. Brain. Hashtag, the, the only thing I can say about this movie is hashtag bring bandanas See, back. it might be the end of the tour, but the beginning for the bandana. Right. I even like the poster. There you it go. It was very John Lennon-esque. Please go. In honor of David Foster Wallace, here is an excerpt from his commencement speech at Kenyon College. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day-in, day-out really means. There happen to be whole, large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, 
routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day, and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job, and you work hard for eight or ten hours, and at the end of the day you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early, because of course you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now, after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of a work day, and the traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded. Because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. But you can't just get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with cart, etc., etc., cutting stuff out because it's a long ceremony. And eventually, you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot and then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, etc., etc. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet been part of you graduates' actual life routine, day after week, after month, after year. But it will be. And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply, personally unfair this is. If I choose to think this way in the store and on the freeway, fine, lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stop and idling in my way. 
It's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I do. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice, or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way, or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it, because it's hard. It takes will and effort, and if you are like me, some days you won't be able to do it, or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you really learn how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred. On fire with the same force that lit the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're gonna to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think the alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish. But please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water, this is water. <laughs>